but there are eight qualities that uh, Peter mentions, and I'm not going to go back and read the whole text, but he says, listen, he says, these qualities, he says, if you um, establish these qualities in your life and you increase in them, you increase in them, he says, it will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the kingdom of God. Uh, and so they're not meant to be something that we, you know, read one time, so those are nice. They're meant to be something we are actually working and building in our lives over and over. And so we've been going through and we'll, we'll spend, we're going to spend quite a bit of time going through each one, one at a time. Uh, what are the qualities? The, the qualities start from faith and they go to love. And what makes this unique is that the, the, the six in the center, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly affection. To Peter's audience, to those he's writing to, to those in the Hellenistic, the Roman and Greek world, they would have known all six of those. They would have heard those. They would have, you know, those were part of the philosophy, the, the, the moralizing of the day. But Peter puts faith on the front end and love on the back end, bookends them with two biblical principles and repurposes them to be about Christ, about our life in Christ. So he speaks to what they know, adds what they don't know, and it all leads us to being effective and fruitful in Christ. Now, he starts off, um, so we've been going through each one. We spent some time in faith. Right now, we're, we're talking about virtue. We started it last, uh, last week. We're, we'll um, probably uh, this week and next, we'll finish up virtue. Um, what is virtue? Virtue, the Greek word, and see, you know, my son's here, so I had the Greek expert with me. Uh, arete, arete, and I know I'm saying it right because I actually called him on the phone and had him correct me before I said it in front of everybody. Uh, for those that don't know, his undergraduate work was in Hebrew and Greek, so that's why I, they, they, he, he and his sister both, they correct me all the time when, when I'm uh, uh, pronouncing languages, that in Latin as well. But arete, it's the Greek word arete, and it only appears about five times in the scripture, and Peter quotes it four of those five times. Quotes it once in his first letter, three in the second letter, Paul quotes it one time in Philippians, and it carries with it the characteristic of moral excellence, virtue, moral excellence. Now this is what he says uh, when he introduces us to this. He says, his divine power, talking about Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And that's, that's how he starts on this path towards these eight qualities. And so premise number one, everything Everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us. It's granted to us. It's gifted to us. Everything that we need for life and godliness is given to us, and it's given to us by a supernatural, otherworldly power of Christ. So it says his divine power. It's granted as a gift. So Peter is implying that what we need for life and godliness cannot be attained by material or physical means. It doesn't come from this world. Doesn't come from the ways of this world. That's premise number one. Premise number two, the, the means, the path, the conduit in which we access this divine power, the granting of this power, is how? It's knowing Christ. 
It says, by, it says, through the knowledge of him. It's by knowing him. Now, keep in mind, when Peter talks about knowing, he means more than knowing about. It doesn't mean that we, we've memorized scriptures. It means actually having been introduced and begun a walk of intimacy. We're somewhere on a continuum of intimacy with Christ, and these qualities continue that continuum. In other words, we grow in that intimacy with him as we build these qualities in our lives. So that's, that's premise number two. It occurs because we've responded at some point. We've recognized his voice. And we've responded at some point to his reality. And that response demonstrates what? That we trust him. That we trust him. I want you to ask yourself that question. Do you know of that moment, that point in which you said, yes, I am responding to your voice, Lord, to trust you, to trust you? Because that is the, the path that begins to release his power in our lives. Number three, the demonstration that we've attained, that, that we are, that, or we are attaining, that we are building these things in our life, the, the things that pertain to life and godliness, therefore that we're trusting him, the demonstration becomes evident when we start to demonstrate his glory and his moral excellence. You see, it says we are called to his glory, to his moral excellence. That's what we're called to. Now, so he gives us these eight, uh, eight uh, steps. You know, our goal is to be fruitful and effective. He gives us eight steps. Step one is faith. Uh, faith, simply put, we, have, we, we first have to trust that relationship. That's faith. Anytime you want to grow close in knowing someone, you have to trust that relationship. How do we know we can trust Jesus? We're just saying about it. The cross. The cross is how we know we can trust Jesus. All right, number two, virtue. What does virtue demonstrate? Virtue demonstrates that the moral excellence of Christ is in us and it's living through us. Virtue demonstrates that the moral excellence, his virtue is in us and it's living through us. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to just speak for me when I say this. I may not be speaking for you, but for me, this is a real problem. It's a real problem. Why? Okay, think about it for a minute. If I'm demonstrating moral excellence, what's one of the first things I have to be? I have to be willing to be brutally honest. I have to be willing to, moral excellence demands that I brutally honestly examine my own life. The problem is, when I brutally honest and examine my own life, I find out how far short from the moral excellence of Christ I am. So by beginning to apply moral excellence, I find out that I'm not. Maybe that's not you. If you ask your, my family, you'll definitely find out that's me. So, how can I, on the one hand, demonstrate Christ's moral excellence, when, when on the other hand, by seeking it, I end up revealing how far I am from it? I think that this dilemma by itself begins to point us the direction to go. And so this is the premise we've been using uh, uh, for this studying virtue. The first one was, I must come to see to Jesus to see what virtue is. The second is, I must be humble in understanding how far I am from it, or better put, how far I am from him. And number three, I need to trust him to make my efforts effective, efficacious, 
in becoming more like him. And so we've spent some time talking about um, coming to see Jesus to see what virtue is, coming to Jesus to see what virtue is. We spent some time on it. I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit. And then we'll get into beginning to humble ourselves in order to see how far we are from it. All right. There's, um, if you go through the Gospels and you read about the crucifixion, there are, it's famously known that there are seven sayings of Jesus when he's on the cross. There's a lot of sermons that have been given about it. And as I was reflecting on them, there's four of them we're going to take a look at this morning as we, as we kind of kind of bracket this subject of, of the seeing virtue in Christ and how it applies to our life. So the very first one is this. This is Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. It's also found in Mark. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, you know, the more I think on this, the more I stop and read this, the more I think is as tortuous as the physicality of the cross was. I think this was the greatest torture for Jesus on the cross right here. Um, you read through the scriptures, there's no greater love relationship in the universe than the Father and the Son. Seven times in the Bible, seven times, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. How often do we see that in life? The love relationship between the Father and the Son is, is a glue that is bound tighter than anything we can imagine. And yet here he is on the cross crying out, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, I know, you know, if you study this at all, you read it all, there's a lot of people who deal with this. We try to understand it theologically. Yes, he's quoting Psalm 22. Yes, it speaks not only of the torture, it speaks of the resurrection. Yes, all those things are true. Yes, when contextually, historically, when someone quotes one part, they're quoting the whole. Yes, all of that is true. And it's a, it, and why do we go through the exercises of trying to figure it out theologically? Because it's so visceral. And can I tell you, if we miss how visceral it is, I think we miss the real point that the, look, there's one thing that scholars point out, that, that this is not a flattering thing for Jesus to have said on the cross. This is why they believe he actually said it. It's why we've tr- struggled to theologically figure it out. But I think there is a purpose and a reason for it. And if you remember last week, I mentioned there was a lecture uh, by Jordan Peterson. It's called, um, let me get the name, Virtue as Necessity. You can look it up on YouTube. Virtue as Necessity by Jordan Peterson. One of the best lectures on virtue I've ever had. I recommend go ahead and and looking it up and and watching it. I'm going to quote from him several times. I quoted from him last week. Quote from him several times in talking about this this morning. And here's something that he says in this. Before, actually, before I say that, let me say this. Here's the point I think we need to not miss with what Jesus said. Jesus is in deep pain. He's in real pain. 
He's hurting. It's visceral. It's emotional. And quite frankly, I think it speaks to the reality of where we live. This is the quote. For most people, there is nothing more real than their own pain. Pain transcends rational argument in that you can't argue yourself out of it. It's just there. Pain is fundamental. Consciousness is fundamental. And I think that unless you understand that, you can't think properly about virtue. If we're going to understand virtue as a state of being, virtue isn't something we do, it's who we are. Virtue is a state of being. How to have a morally excellent character and nature of Jesus as our being, we have to wrestle with our pain. And I think it begins at the cross. Now, what I think is unique about the cross is that it speaks to it in a way the world can't speak to it. We looked at these last week. Um, I'm going to briefly remind us, when we, when we look at the material world, how does the material world, those who see the world only as material, who don't see non-material realities as real, um, this is Richard Dawkins. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And he goes on and he says, DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Richard Dawkins is a, of a biology professor at, uh, at Oxford. He says, look, we're just, we're just material beings. All we are is made up of DNA. It's just this material stuff. We're hardwired to any circumstance we come from. It's already predetermined how we're going to behave. Stephen Hawking said the same thing in, in, in his way. He's a, a famous physicist also from Oxford. He says, everything, is everything determined? The answer is yes. But it might as well not be because we never know what it is, what is determined. We're just dancing to our DNA. This just, the, the, these things that, the, these non-material realities are things we make up in our mind. How satisfying is that when you're going through pain? It's not real. Bart Ehrman uh, is, a, is a, a theologian at Yale, um, Uh, hang on. He wrote this in his blog. He's also a, a, an atheist. He says, this materials view creates enormous conceptual problems that I wrestle with all the time. If I am just matter, nothing else, how do I have any consciousness at all? How do I think? How do I appear to make independent judgments and decisions? How do I seem to be able to do something? Who is doing it if there is no me within the body, no separate functioning will inside of the brain? How can molecules have a will? He says, I have an answer for that. Darned if I know. I don't know. And I quoted to you this last week, and this is where we're starting off point. Jordan Peterson, he answers these questions. He says, what we fail to notice that is the fundamental constituent elements of our own reality are not material. 
The fundamental elements that make up our reality, they're emotional, they're motivational, they're dreams, they're visions, they're relationships with other people, they're conscious, they're dependent on consciousness and self-consciousness. We have absolutely no materialist explanation whatsoever for either consciousness or self-consciousness. And we don't deal well from a materialistic perspective with the qualities of being, who we are, who I am. Everyone knows these realities exist. So... It's a fact. Everyone, every one of us knows our emotions are real. Everyone knows our, our motivations, our dreams, our visions, our relationships, our longing for relationships, our consciousness, our self-consciousness. Everyone knows they're real, but there is no answer for them in the material world. Where does it come from? Why is it real? How is it real? So let's look at an example. How many have ever heard of two brothers named Cain and Abel? Anybody heard of Cain and Abel? All right, so what do you have with Cain and Abel? You have two brothers who are offering a sacrifice to God. So uh, right away, they're recognizing the, the existence of this non-material world. So they have an offering a sacrifice to God. One's a farmer. He's raising crops. That's Cain. The other's a shepherd. He's raising animals. And this is Abel. And so they both recognize worship as a correct response to God's provision. Now, Cain is corrected by, by God because of a failure. And Abel is commended by God because of his faith. So, now, let me say one thing. What's interesting to me about this is we know that the fundamental error that Cain uh, um, committed was not physical. See, a lot of people have said, well, you know, Cain offered crops, Abel offered animals, and he just, just because he offered, well, no, because the book of Leviticus talks all about offering crops. There's nothing wrong with crops as an offering to God. That's not the issue. The issue is something else. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly what it was, but we know uh, by knowing the fact that Abel was commended because of his faith, his failure then was a moral failure. All right. Now, having said all that, we know this much about the story. Um, notice something about Cain. He is under no physical or material threat in the story. Is Abel like going to raise up and, you know, is he, is he afraid of Abel coming after him? Is God said, I'm going to strike you down? Is there a storm coming? Is there a hurricane? Is he under any physical threat in the material world at all? None. Zero. Both of them have full provision. Both of them are living, uh, uh, living just fine. What is the problem? The only problem is this. Cain is confronted by virtue, by moral excellence. He's confronted by the non-material world, and it threatens his very existence. It threatens his self. His moral failure is compared to moral excellence. And how does he see it when he sees his failure? He sees it as pain. It hurts him. In fact, it hurts him so much that he allows himself to become bitter and resentful. A, re a bitterness and resentment that is so deep that he actually looks at what is morally excellent and calls it evil. Is everybody following me? He has a bitterness and a resentment so deep because he is confronted by, uh, by virtue, by moral excellence, that he actually allows himself to call what is morally excellent evil. So much so that he kills his brother because of it. His own pain 
the own pain of his own shame, his own guilt that he is carrying, it becomes a threat to his self-existence. These are fundamental uh, non-material realities of our existence. And guess what? They can be more real than our physical existence. Did you catch me? The things that aren't physical can be more real than the things that are. Do you remember we talked about this last week? When God created us, what did he do? He went and got some dirt. Actually, let me back it up because there's a better way of putting this. When God created Adam, he went and got some dirt. Most of the time when I'm in marriage counseling and I tell people that, the wives go, I knew it. I knew that's where he came from. I knew it. Anyway, he went and got some dirt, right? What did he do? He took from the physical elements of this world and he built a human body. So we are made of the elements of this world. We know that. When we study it in science all the time, we can, we can boil it down exactly what chemical properties we are. We are made of this world. But then he does something unique, something different, something he doesn't do in all the rest of creation. He breathes from his spirit into man, animates the physical, and now all of a sudden, humanity, mankind, is connected to both the physical and the spiritual world, both what is, what is material and non-material at the exact same time. The only beings in all of creation like that. Only beings in all, and says, we reflect the image of God. We reflect that. C.S. Lewis says this, so pain, talking, bringing back pain, pain then is, in, is part of this existence of this, is part of this non-material world, and C.S. Lewis says this, this is in the problem of pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon a being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world let me ask you a question and i know i don't have to go very deep asking this question and i'm not asking you to go deep but how many of us have ever had a dream crushed lost something of value or someone now, physically, on the outside, our life could be no different. I mean, look, we could have everything taken care of, everything provided for, everything in the material is fine on the outside. But yet we use words like devastated, crushed, rightly so. Pain demonstrates the reality of the non-material world. We live and operate in this non-material world every day, all day, often denying this world exists. And this is the world of virtue. This is the world of moral excellence. We wouldn't call it wrong if virtue didn't exist. We wouldn't say it was a problem if there wasn't moral excellence to begin with. Here's the problem. It can't be measured in a science lab. But this is the world of being. This is the world of existence. Now, scholars have a way of differentiating between these two worlds. They call it normative truth versus objective truth. Normative truth, they say this. It refers to truths about our existence that we all agree on, but they're, they're non-material. Objective truth reveals to the, uh, talks about the physical world, things we can prove in the physical world. Can I tell you something? There is one point at which this non-material world and the material world actually come together and converge. 
It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians, uh, Jesus is, in John, John tells us this, that in the beginning was the, what? Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. All that is nominally true. All that is non-material world. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. Uh, he says, which is Christ. He's talking about Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything in that, the, that, uh, that we understand or seek to understand about that world is hidden in Christ. And, but, but then John tells us what? Jesus is the word become flesh. He is literally the union of all that is physical and non-material embodied in a person and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have what seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth what is the two things we're called to glory and excellence what do we see in jesus the glory and the excellence of god this i I listened to one scholar who was coming to a realization of this and he said this is actually one of the most terrifying thoughts he's ever had Because everything that is good, pure, perfect, holy, and good is not just an idea somewhere to shoot for. It's actually embodied in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And where is the point that we see this greatest expressed? And that's on the cross. It's on the cross. The cross is the greatest expression. Why? Why? What do we see? We see evil. We see malevolence of the world at the cross. We see the gratuitous, depraved nature of humanity. We see that side, the cross, depicts all of that. But we also see the love of God in its greatest expression. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We see the empathy of Christ in his full experience of our existence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does Jesus do with all these things? He does something amazing. The single most creative act of God is he creates new life from all of this. From the cross, we have freedom. We have forgiveness. We have something uncorruptible. We have something unfading. We have glory itself. So when we're in pain, how do we begin to understand it? How does God begin to address our pain? He enters into it. He enters into it. And he creates something new out of it. Number two. I must be humble in understanding how far I am from him. The second saying of Jesus on the cross uh, that I'm going to talk about this morning is from Luke 23. It says this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How many remember that? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now that's a very weird thing for him to have said, because can I tell you that crucifixion was premeditated. Would we ever tell someone that they're premeditated? They don't know what they're doing. So he's obviously looking and seeing with eyes that, that are beyond than what we're seeing for seeing with. They knew exactly what they were doing, and yet he says they don't know what they're doing, and they actually didn't know what they were doing. Why? Because they were blinded by their own pain. 
They were blinded by their own selfishness. This is a, now, now let's take that statement. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And let's put it in context of what he had already said. He already said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? In his greatest moment of feeling separated from God is the moment he also says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's one thing to take one statement. It's another thing to take the other statement. But when you marry those two together, you get a picture of virtue. You get a picture of moral excellence that you can't see anywhere else. This isn't just an idea. This isn't just something in a non-material world. This is the embodiment of Christ himself. This is what we're called to. So how does Jesus respond to what's happening to him? How does Jesus ultimately overcome what is actually overcoming him? It's grace. I think we fall far short of understanding the depth of grace. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you hear that? He's not a high priest sitting up there looking at our weaknesses going. (sighs) He knows how we feel. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows the sweat of overcoming temptation. He knows what it takes to say no. Let us then with confidence draw near. Catch this. What's it called? The throne of grace. How many think of grace as seated on a throne? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we're to have the virtue, if we're to have the moral excellence of Jesus, it begins with being completely honest in our weaknesses and recognizing our own participation with evil. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is understanding and drawing near to the throne of grace. I started off with a premise. Moral excellence demands me to be 100% honest, 100% truthful. But when I am 100% honest and I am 100% truthful, what do I see? What I don't want to see, what I don't like. What is my tendency to do then? To bury it, to hide it, say, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good guy. Jesus is God. That's why he was that good. I can never be like Jesus. I'm just going to be, you know, a guy that's hanging on, trying to make it. And we never actually examine the moral excellence of Jesus in our own lives, open and honest, saying, Jesus, I got a lot of weakness, but you have a lot of grace and you want to wash that you want to cleanse that you want to set me free from that you want me to rise up in this and do the hard work of struggling to live that out you see the throne of grace isn't just something that overlooks how bad we are the throne of grace is the thing that lets us take all of our junk, put it before him, not be condemned for it, be washed and cleansed, and then be uplifted, encouraged, and empowered, and strengthened to walk forward from there. That's the throne of grace. 
So what is it that we need to be honest about? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Russian writer, wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Um, spent many years in a, a Soviet Gulag. Uh, wrote the greatest history of Russia that's existed. Brilliant man. He said this. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The throne of grace calls us to come honestly before Jesus. See, when we become that honest, guess what else develops in our lives? Compassion. Empathy. The ability to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Paul wrote it this way in Corinthians. He said, moreover, it is required of student stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Why? Verse four, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul's not saying, he's saying, listen, I go before the Lord. I allow him to shine what he wants to shine so that he can allow him to shine through me. If we allow the light of God to shine inside of us and he points out what is darkness, then we can turn that darkness into light. But we come not because he's condemning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. He's not coming because he's guilty. He's not coming because he's shamed. He's coming because the throne of grace embraces us and washes the guilt, washes the shame. We shouldn't be hiding it. We should be exposing it because when the works of darkness are exposed, light comes out instead. All right. That's what Cain failed to do. Cain failed to recognize his own capacity for evil. Instead, Cain became the arbiter of what was good. He even told God what was good. Even after God told him what was good, he decided from his perspective, no, what my brother is doing isn't right. What my brother is doing is bad. Because it makes me look bad. He, he becomes, now God warns him. God tells him, it's not Abel's fault. It's not my fault. You're the source of your suffering. It's your own doing. So gird yourself up. Point the finger at yourself. Don't let your selfishness have its way. But Cain didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to hear it. There was no seeing. Thus, what, is, what happens? He became bitter and resentful. He became bitter and resentful. The biggest thing that we have to guard against, the number one thing we have to guard against is becoming bitter and resentful. The easiest thing to do when we go through suffering, when we go through difficulty, when we go through hard times, is to be bitter and resentful. And can I tell you, out of bitterness and resentfulness brings destructiveness to ourselves, and when it brings it to us, it brings it to the world around us. 
Now somebody says, well, wait a minute, if I'm destroying myself, I'm not hurting anybody else. Really? How about your family who have to put up with it? How about your coworkers who are living around it? We don't live isolated. The most destructive thing that we can do to ourselves is become bitter and resentful. Because of our suffering. I'm going to ask you right now. I mean, come on. Anybody on social media? You can raise your hand. It's all right. Anybody see any bitterness and resentfulness on social media? No? Look at the person's phone next to you. You'll find it. The one who's being honest. Just joking. James put it this way. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So what are we called to do then? When we see that, when, I mean, I've, I've, I'll watch the news and, or I'll, I'll see something posted and I'll start to, you know, I'll feel the blood start to boiling and I'll start to get all this. And I go, I just tell God straight up, Lord, it is hard not to get bitter right now. And I bring it to him. I draw near to the throne of grace. I tell him what's going on. Another quote from Peterson, virtue is a call to begin to face those things which are real, which are weak and which are not good for us. And as you target them, and as you make mistakes, you readjust and you get better at it. And over some period, you are better. You are better. Did you catch the state of being? You've gone forward. How do we do this? Jesus said this. This is in Luke 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he, br- he breathed his last. He had complete trust in God. How did he get through it? How did he forgive? He had complete trust in God. What he knew, what he knew is that his suffering didn't have, let me say it a different way. His suffering had purpose. His suffering had meaning. How did he know? You know what? Even if he didn't know, he did know. But even if he didn't know the full amount of how God might use it, he still knew that God will work together all things to those who were called according to his purpose, to his goodness. Now, notice the context in which that's put in. I'm not going to read the whole context, but go back and check, check out Romans 38, starting in verse 31 and going to 39. What is Paul saying? Listen, we're persecuted. We're, we go through tribulation. We go through hunger. We go through famine. We go through all these things. The context in which Paul says all things work together is the context of suffering, is the context of difficulty, is the context of trial. And he says, none of that can separate me from the love of God. When my focus is on him, then I I am able to endure what I go through, not because I like it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because I have the virtue of Christ that says you have meaning and purpose in this. So much so that even Joseph, when his brothers come to him, after having thrown him in a pit, sold him into slavery, after being put in jail falsely, his brothers say, Joe, are you going to hurt us? You're going to kill us now? He says, no, what you meant for evil, God 
meant for good. He had eyes to see God can use even the most gratuitous evil for his good purposes. Not that God desires it, not that that's God's will, but that he can and he trusted him in it. And so that takes me to the last one, the fourth saying. When Jesus, received, when Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. When Jesus had received sour wine, he said, what? It's done. At the moment, when everything to everyone else seemed it was all lost, at the lowest, at the darkest moment, at the moment there's an earthquake going on, at the moment there, there's darkness over the whole earth, at the moment the ground is shaking, at the moment the ground inside of the disciples is shaking, the moment of their highest level of fear, the moment that their dreams are dashed and most devastated, Jesus says it's finished. It's done. He actually won the victory. Now, David, uh, um, uh, um, the, the apostles, uh, Paul quotes, um, says this in the book of Acts. He says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Catch this. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. So, us. Exhibiting the moral excellence of Jesus. It starts and begins in Jesus. It begins as we place our trust in him. It begins in knowing that he has meaning and purpose in whatever we're going through, even if we don't understand it, even if it hurts like we can't take it anymore. He has meaning and purpose in this, and that purpose is good. It is a good and holy purpose, and he will work it out if we don't give up, if we press on. And then we will be like David who served God in our generation. I'm going to close with this quote. This is a quote from A.W. Tozer. Uh, It says this in a book he wrote. um, The name of the book is The Next Chapter After the Last. I love that name. In other words, just when you feel like it's over, there's another chapter. This is what he says. He says, the ideal life was described by the apostle in the book of Acts. For David, after he had served His own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep. This is Tozer speaking. We submit that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to improve upon this. It embraces the whole sphere of religion, appearing as it does in three directions. God, the individual, and society. Within that simple triangle, all possible human activities are carried on. To each of us, there can be but three dimensions. God myself, and others. Beyond this, we cannot go, nor should we even attempt to go. If we serve God according to his own will, as we see exhibited by Jesus on the cross, and in so doing, serve our generation, we shall have accomplished all that is possible for any human being. Now, David was smart enough to serve God and his generation before he fell asleep. To fall asleep before we have served our generation gets this. Pay attention to this. Cue in. We're almost done. Cue in really hard for a minute. To fall asleep before we have served our generation is nothing short of tragic. 
It's good to sleep at last, all, as all our honored fathers have done, but it is a moral calamity to sleep without having first labored to bless the world. No man has any right to die until he puts mankind in debt to himself. No man has any moral right to lie down on the earth till he has wrought to take something of the earth out of the hearts of men till he has helped to free men from the tyranny of that same earth and pointed them to that kingdom that will abide after the heavens and after the earth are no more. We're all in debt to the world and that debt increases as we grow older. And the point he's making is we're all in debt because we're here. If we, have, if we are wise in the spirit, we shall see to it that we turn the tables and put the world in debt to us. And this can only be by serving our generation by the will of God before it is too late. That was my, one of my devotionals I was reading this week. And I'll tell you, I've been, as you can see, chewing on it ever since. You see, the moral excellence we've been called isn't optional. It's not a would it be nice to be. We're called to be the moral excellence of Christ. We fall short of it. That's okay. That's why there's the throne of grace. We fall before the throne of grace and he empowers us in it. And when we do that, we serve God in our generation. When we do that, we serve God in our generation because others can't help but to be touched by it. Amen? Amen.